0: This is Lawrence Block, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me today as co-host is Ellen Byron.
1: Welcome, Ellen. Hey, I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Now, Ellen is the author of the Cajun Country Mystery Series of Cozies, as well as the Catering Hall Mysteries, which she writes under a pen name. She is an Agatha Award winner, a Lefty Award winner, What are you doing slumming it down here with me?
1: Are you kidding? This is such an honor because, like, you've had so many amazing people co hosting. So I'm like, I'm fangirling right now. (laughs) All right. If anyone else wants to be a co host, this is how you do it. (laughs)
0: Compliments go a long way on writer types here. Well, okay, we're going to get into a longer discussion of cozy mysteries yeah. later, but let's start uh, with the humor in your books because your books are definitely they're they're lighter. They're, there's a lot of funny along with you know the blood and the murder. Yeah. You've also been a sitcom writer yes. uh, on shows like Wings and Just Shoot Me. I mean, what made you go for a humorous mystery
1: rather than just a, a straight humor book? Well, you know, I always loved reading mysteries. It's my favorite thing to read. Um, Ever since I was a kid, you know, the classic Nancy Drew, Agatha Christie. And uh, when I was going through a a drought in my sitcom career, a friend started a little writer's group. And I thought, well, I'm going to try writing what I love to read, which is mysteries. Now, I tried once before during a hiatus. um, I used to teach uh, a lot of writing classes at UCLA Extension during TV hiatuses. And I get a free class with the times I taught. And I decided to take a mystery writing class. And um, I really wanted to kill a writer I worked with because he was, <laughs> he backstabbed us. And so I went in there and everyone else's was better. And I was the only professional writer in the group. So I thought, well, I can't really do this. So you got cut to 2011. And my friend Mindy Schneider, who's a wonderful writer, started just this little foursome group. And I thought, I'm going to try again. And, and why I write humor is like, I can't, it's almost like I can't not write humor. Yeah. I've written one standalone that my agent has now, and it was inspired by a real life event. My grandfather who was a low level Jewish mobster, even though I'm half Italian, <laughs> uh, disappeared in 1933. And I've written a fictional book, a fiction inspired by that. And it was really weird because there's very little humor in it. And I, I feel like someone else wrote that book. It just doesn't <laughs> feel like me.
0: In your series uh, you write about New Orleans uh, quite a bit and uh, but you live in Los Angeles were raised in New York uh, are, are you, you carpetbagging a little bit here to write about a New little Orleans bit,
1: But I went to new, I went to Tulane Okay there you go And yeah the Cajun country series of course is set in Cajun country but I, I have a new mystery series coming out um in 2022 uh The Vintage Cookbook and that I just flat out set in New Orleans and I'm so it's so wonderful to be writing specifically about the city that really you know, if I could, I'd move there. Oh, wow. I think there was, a, when the series began, I think there was a little bit. I remember um, when Plantation Shutters was nominated for the best first novel, Margaret Maron, God bless her, uh, moderated that panel. And she had emailed the question, some questions to us. And then she said it, you know, like, what makes you think you can write about this? <laughs> And I was so nervous because she said it a little like judgy. I'm not, (laughs) I love her dearly, but it was not without judgment. And so I had an answer prepared about how, you know, people who write historical mysteries are not living in the time period, yet they are so engrossed and enriched, you know, and so inspired by them that they can recreate them. And so I said, you know, for example, I I knew that Reese Bowen was in the audience and i'm like so i had this whole thing prepared and i said for example like reese witherspoon and so <laughs> so cuz i was so nervous and i didn't even know i did it and you heard this mum this muttering <laughs> and then, then you someone heard it, reese bow and i'm like oh my god <laughs> i completely i was so mortified well now in these uh, in your
0: cajun country series also you you have a basset hound in, in these books now yes. i want to know for for a cozy writer is, is picking the right dog An important part of coming up with a cozy storyline? I mean, would would this work with a different dog breed or was it specifically have to be this dog?
1: It was only specifically a Basset Hound because that was the dog we had. Lucy was Ah. a Basset Rescue that I was madly in love with. And I've actually immortalized all three of our dogs in my books. Wiley is King Cake and Pogo is Jolie. Although the sex has got mixed up in the books, but I'll tell you one thing. Um, the catering hall mysteries, which I write under this pen name, Maria Rico, I was not going to make any mistakes there. I put a cat in and uh-huh. I insist, I said, you got to put a cat on the cover. So the first two books, there's a cat on a cover because I'd heard someone said there are readers who, when the books come out, the Tuesdays they come out, they will go to the stores and only buy cozies that have cats on the cover.
2: Oh, wow. I mean,
1: honestly, I give a lot of props to the Malice readers that I've been you know, nominated and have won with a big old basset hound on the cover. Because <laughs> those are not usually the covers you see in the best contemporary novel category.
0: The dog and cat divide is that strong even among oh. mystery readers.
1: <laughs> well, I don't think the dog, I, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think the dog um, lovers are as intense about it as the cat lovers.
0: All right. Good. Well, I have three dogs and I'm allergic oh. to cats. So, so I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the dog side.
1: <laughs> Great.
0: All right. Well, let's get to our first author. What do you say? Yes. All right. Here's where you help me out with, uh, with introducing them. And our first guest is a legendary thriller writer, Linwood Barclay. His new novel, Find You First, is the latest in a long line of high-tension thrillers. This one is about a tech billionaire who discovers he has nine children from his time as a sperm donor, which that that could be the setup to a cozy, but then it takes a very dark turn. (laughs) Uh, And then when the children start getting knocked off, he's in a race to find out what's going on and to stop it. Now, Ellen, I assume you do some reading uh, outside, across all the different flavors of mystery. Do do you ever go and pick up like a straight ahead thriller, the capital T thriller kind of thing? You
1: know what? I don't really read thrillers, but I read suspense because of course my book, the new book, uh Standalone is a suspense. So, you know, I love hallie Efron, you know, Hank, uh, b Ryan. I mean I i do read um absolutely suspense. Um I don't know why I'm not a big thriller reader, but that sounds like a great book. It <laughs> well, does.
0: This this could be your entree into it could a, be a whole my different entree.
1: world. I'm fascinated. <laughs>
0: Well, Linwood, thanks for joining me today uh, on the occasion of Find You First, your, your latest thriller. You have quite a stack of thrillers, though, so uh, this has got to be old news for you, just uh, getting there talking about the latest book, right?
3: Well, it doesn't, you know, it does, I like to say it doesn't get old. You know, it's always uh, fun when a new one comes along. It's still fun.
0: Well, I, you know, Find You First follows in a tradition that, that I see in your books where you it feels like you pile kind of multiple plots on top of each other. This one, you know, starts off, it's about a tech billionaire in in search of these children that he he wasn't sure he had from being a sperm donor. But then you got to throw in this extra mystery on top when they start to drop in dead. I mean, do you think as you plot, do you sort of, get antsy midway through and just decide to, to start adding more and more stuff, how do you come across these multi layered
3: plots? No, usually I know what they are. I mean, it's it's uh, before I begin, I know that I've got sort of whatever number of balls it is that I'm going to be juggling. And I know that I've got these different threads because I know that there's going to come a point where these different storylines are all going to intersect. And a lot of times, too, I think that when, you, when you're starting to think about a book and you have the sort of idea of the main thread... You think, yeah, that's great, but it's not enough. I need something else mm-hmm. that's going to T-bone it and just go right into the side of it. So, so it's a lot of times taking sometimes two disparate elements and just saying, how can I, can I make these fit together?
0: Yeah, well, and and I I appreciate the, like as a reader I've I love that kind of thing where like I, I think we all read too many books where it seems like the person you know maybe they started off with a great hook but it's not necessarily enough to sustain for 300 350 pages. So yeah, it, it, it,
3: and you know it's funny I was just started to, I was looking at it the other day when I was like I don't know seventeen eighteen I read William Goldman's book Marathon Man, which had a large impression on me, but there was a book that. You know, the first chapter was this sort of one storyline, and then the next chapter yeah. was a totally different one. And the third chapter was another one. But at the time, it seemed like a very innovative, very radical approach. You know, it kept jumping for, and you think, when are these things going to start coming together? I mean, a lot of and a lot of our authors do that now, but that was a, a book I think that was kind of trendsetting at the time.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that yeah, well, Goldman had a lot of heavy influence on a lot of writers uh, yeah. from uh, novels and, and his screenplays. Well, and uh, okay, speaking of writers who've had a lot of influence, Stephen King called Find You First the best book of your career, which is high praise. I mean, are you able, after this many books, to have that kind of perspective on your own work, or is the, the newest, shiniest thing always your best?
3: Well, you know, and I'm now, I feel like with a, with a blurb like that from Mr. King, maybe I should just quit. Yeah. Uh, I just. <laughs> anything I do from here on is just gonna be rubbish. But you know, one of the challenges when you do a book a year, as I've done for quite some time now, is that you really want every book that you do to be the best one you've ever done. And some years you think, yeah, you know what, I think maybe I did it. And other years you think, Well, this one will get me by, but you know, that one I did five years ago. (laughs) That one I did five years ago, that was really good and I haven't topped that one yet. But a lot of people who've read this book feel this is the best one I've done. I mean I have I have some favorites of all of the books I have done this one's up there for sure
0: well and uh, much like uh, miles the character in the book he when he finds out he has nine children I mean you've only got two kids of your own but, I mean, <laughs> yes. it, it's tempting to try to pick favorites but uh, the books kind of become your children right
3: <laughs> yeah although because they're not actually your kids I don't mind doing I mean I have it's funny I have I do have my favorites of the books I've done and ones that I'm less thrilled about and 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 yet you know someone will come up and say boy, that book, such and such that I just think that's the best book you ever did. And I'm thinking, I hate that book, but it seems <laughs> it seems really rude to argue with them, you know, to say, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you're completely wrong.
0: Well, I, I saw on your website, you uh, offer up a list of uh, top 23 thriller movies. And if anytime you write down a list, it it. it makes film buffs bristle with titles that you might have missed or differences of opinion i'm not going to put you through that although i did take issue with two of your entries
3: well well i actually want to hear it there but the but it's funny because that you know we did a a bunch of little things like that 20 a list of 23 when i had a book come out about three or four years ago called the 23 and so they said well give us your 23 top thrillers or movies now okay and i and i but what are the ones you disagree with what did i have on that list i don't even remember (laughs) <laughs> i don't I know what the top two would probably have been, and that would have been vertigo and rear window but, yes, and they still are in my top two spots. If those are the ones that you disagree with then i'm I think we're done <laughs> <laughs> i
0: right, I'm going to go out of limb here then and say, I know I'm in the minority, but I have never been a vertigo fan. I'm all really? in okay. on rear window yep. all, all in, but vertigo I just find kind of confusing and and it's a very convoluted way. To to get revenge, like finding a lookalike, and it's it requires a lot of happenstance.
3: (laughs) I don't disagree with you. Vertigo, if you really sit down and analyze it, is ridiculous. Yes, because the 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 lengths that someone goes to to commit a perfect crime, it would be so much easier to just say that your wife tripped down the stairs and hit her head, and you'd be done. (laughs) So it's so the plot is I I don't disagree it's convoluted it's it's there are a hundred places along the way in this in the storyline for this to go wrong for this to go astray I I don't disagree with any of that. But I love it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's, those are often the best stories are the ones that, that you take the biggest leap of faith. Sure, it's true, and it, and that one and this and I won't listen. I don't argue. It's Verigo's plot is outrageous. It
0: made me wonder if you uh, if you draw the same amount of influence maybe from from films and that sort of thriller structure as you do from other novels. Do you, do you take influence
3: from sort of a cinematic uh, storytelling style? I do. I think books and movies have been and TV in particular, have been hugely influential. I think starting with television, because I was a child, you know a kid of the 60s, and I was just, my eyes were square. I was just addicted to television. Like shows like Bishop Impossible and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and so I got a little older, Columbo, and all these kinds of things I was just obsessed with. And so when I was like 10, 11 years old, You know like an episode a week of the man U.N.C.L.E. wasn't enough for me i needed more so i would sit down and write my what we call fan fiction today and i would Uh write my own i would write my own stories using characters that other people had created in fact when i was right i think 11 i got my dad i asked my dad teach me how to type on this old royal typewriter we had that weighed about the same as a volkswagen and said teach me how to type because it's i want to be able to write these stories more quickly and so when I was like 12, I was writing 35, 40 page novellas based on my shows that I love. Wow. And I think from that, my osmosis picked up the sense of momentum and, and when to break your story. So it's like, I, even to this day, I look at chapter breaks as commercial breaks, right? When you, you end a chapter with something that makes you think I have to stay here. I can't go. Don't introduce, you know, really great reveals in the middle of a chapter. you wait to the end. That, I think, was a, a massive influence. And, of course, books, once I got past the Hardy Boys, I was Devouring Agatha Christie and the Rex Stouts, and then I found Ross MacDonald at the age of 15, and that was a kind of revelation for me. And, wow. But movies, too, Hitchcock, um, even in more later years, the early movies of someone like uh, M. Night Shyamalan or whatever, who will dangle the clues right in front of you, um, but you don't see them. Yeah, and and then you look at somebody like J.J. Abrams, you know, who's who starting with a show like Alias and other shows, you know, because we've become, I think, extremely impatient as consumers <laughs> of entertainment. He started doing things like he would start off a program with a pivotal, massive, suspenseful event to get you hooked, and yeah. then, you know, the words would come up on the screen three days earlier or something like that, or 36 hours earlier. And those are all interesting techniques, you know? And, and so I think all of those things, you just, when you do this sort of thing for a living, you start to absorb those and think, how can I rip these off? (laughs) (laughs) Or or how can I, how can I use these to advantage, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, as someone who works in TV for a living, thank you for respecting the medium and not just thinking that it's all trash.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, listen, I would love to tell you that my influence was Hemingway and Dickens, you know, and that would be just a lot of crap. (laughs) That's not the stuff that influenced me
0: well I mean you, you have such a a long list of books you you've been so prolific, but uh, it, I, it was kind of surprising to think that you actually haven't been publishing even that long i mean this is no. a, this is a tremendous amount of books in a short amount of time, and you even took twenty twenty off
3: <laughs> well that wasn't that wasn't entirely planned well, but yeah. <laughs> um, since two thousand and four I've had a novel a year, some years there were two but it's true like the first novel was out in two thousand four. So we've done. I've been able to do twenty books in under seventeen years, or whatever it is. My fingers are exhausted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, it, it, we officially give you permission to to take a little bit of a break. So you you've, you've earned a little bit of time off. <laughs> so. Well,
3: I quite a bit of uh, spare time through twenty twenty, which I spent working in my basement on a bizarre model railway. So I at least I used my time wisely. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right,
0: excellent. Well, uh, Lynwood, thanks for uh, for joining me today, and uh, congratulations on find you first. Uh, I, and I guess it, if people want to judge if it is really your best book uh, yet, they'll have to read it themselves and decide on their own.
3: Well, you know, I you know just trust Mr. King; he's never wrong about these things.
0: No, no. You see, it, 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 the the point is they have to read all of your books and decide which is the best. I'm trying oh, to sell you
3: books here. Oh, that's an excellent <laughs> plan. That's an excellent plan. I think I I, I defer to your wisdom on that. One. Yes. Okay.
0: Okay, well, time now to check in with our resident book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. Uh, before I go off and talk to them, Ellen, have you read anything good lately?
1: Yes. I uh, read Carl Hyazen's Squeeze Me. Um, mm. Carl was uh, one of my fellow nominees for The Lefty this year, for The Best Humorous Lefty. And it was such a great book. I mean, it's yeah. dark sat- it's dark it's dark satire, yet it has a happy ending. You know, and I loved how... Um, Mar Lago became Casa Bellicosa. I just loved it, and I fin- love thinly
0: veiled. Oh, well, he, you could recognize you know, it he still.
1: Didn't, he didn't even try. I was like, <laughs> it's just hilarious, and, and how um, the uh, that group of trumpets was the Potussis. So, <laughs> I mean, it was just—it's just hilarious.
0: Excellent. Well, Carl Heisen uh, certainly a go-to if you're looking for humor along with your your mistress, oh,
1: absolutely. For sure.
0: Well, Dan and Kate, it's great to see you again, even just through the video screen. And we're here to talk about some more books. But before we even get to that, Dan, because I I, I know we're going to talk about your book. It's going to go quick because we all love it and it's great. And that's all that needs to be said about it. But I want to talk to you because you recently, for the first time, watched one of my all-time favorite revenge crime films, The
2: Limey. Oh, yeah. And what did you think? I wish I could go back and watch that for the first time again. No, that was that was good stuff. Um, if any positive has come out of quarantine, it's uh, HBO Max. Discovering things for the first time is a whole lot of fun. I am a huge Steven Soderbergh fan, more so for Out of Sight, um, the Ocean's movies. As as far as the Limey goes, it was lean and it was um, definitely on a on a very streamlined trajectory, but there's that monologue right in the middle and it's probably the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I, <laughs> so, so there's more to it than just um, getting revenge for the death of Jenny.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I, one thing I definitely appreciated. it. It was, it was tight and, and just, it, it was one in that period where he was really playing with structure. I think a lot that he sort of started to do in out of sight, that kind of, oblique editing style where you're seeing kind of flashes of the past and then flashes forward while you're, you know, covering over a monologue or something like you said, I stylistically, I just adore that film and it shows, I think what you can do to elevate, you know, a, a crime story or a revenge story into art if you just give the
2: log line, it's kind of death wish, but, you know, but it elevates it so much more with your background. You, you have words for these editing, (laughs) editing files. And I'm like, it was cool when there's a narration in the background, but what you're seeing is a person um, staring off into the window. Yeah. Um, You know, and I'm like, that's neat. And then there's a dissolve and a, and a starburst. You put that all into into a cinematic blender; it just comes out perfect. Yes, I agree. Uh,
0: all right, well then let's uh, let's talk about uh, the the book that you read because it sounds like Kate uh, passed off one of her favorites and finally allowed you to get a, a
2: crack at it. I mean, it, it's all about who goes to bed first. Um, and <laughs> so we're going to talk about um, Owen Laukinen's, um *The Wild*. I mean, he's just a talented thriller writer with form and function, anyway. But his YA stuff, he really leans things down stylistically his chapters can range from two pages to um two paragraphs Yeah, um, and he does a lot with the form with you know descending um, sentence structure visually it's cool it reads um exactly the way a person will speak um and you can't stop turning pages
0: well uh, much like you I, I had to wait to get my hands on this because my kid as soon as it came in the house my kids stole this from me mm-hmm. <laughs> so.
2: yeah everybody knows it's 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 Owen is like Smuckers, you know, with a name like that, it's got to be good. So, I
0: mean. <laughs> Smuckers is easier to pronounce than Laukenen, though. <laughs> I still Smucker. don't know if I'm saying it
2: right. Yeah, Smuckers he's, is not he's, finished. He's yeah. never corrected me. <laughs> it's absolutely a, a whirlwind read. Um, and it's the kind of stuff that is going to appeal to YA or grown readers. It's, oh, it's a sure. case where the labels don't matter. This is just a yes. great, fun book. Yes, agree.
0: All right. Well, then we'll shift over to Kate. Uh, What have you been reading?
4: So I read uh, Bottle Demon by Stephen Blackmore. Oh, yes. This is continuing part of his Eric Carter Necromancer series. And this is actually one of the series that whenever a new book comes out, I will make a point to read that book. There are a lot of series that I've started and I'm like, yeah, these are great and I really enjoy them. Oh, they've got another one out. That's great. But with Eric Carter, uh, I will go back every time. Yeah. Um, So Eric Carter is a necromancer. And at the end of the last book, um, Ghost Money, Eric Carter dies. And I had, I personally had to like sit with that for a minute. I'm like, wait a minute. He just killed his protagonist, his main character. (laughs) So I was very happy when Bottle Demon came out. It starts with Eric, with Carter being brought back to life. Um, And it turns out he spent the last five years in the Aztec underworld, McLaughlin as the God of the Dead, King of the Underworld, as you do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Carter gets brought back to help deal with a djinn, which is sort of like a genie, but not quite, who's been locked in a bottle for the last 5,000 years. And the spells are starting to degrade. And apparently Carter is the only one that can either put them back together or contain the djinn in some capacity. So it's a race to figure out how do we deal with this entity that's going to come back, destroy the world, <laughs> or do, how do we how do we prevent that from happening, or if it happens, how do we stop it?
0: Yeah, Blackmore. I mean, I I, I love his stuff, I and mean, it's it, it, he's got a great balance of humor. Cause I mean, Steven himself is just, he's just a funny guy. I've hung out with him a ton, but yeah, you're right. These books always go, I mean, first of all, they they go to unexpected places just because they're so monumentally weird on the surface. And Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I think that might've been kind of my entree into like what is an urban fantasy book, Mm -hmm. you know, was through this series. And yeah, it's just the world building of this sort of shadow world that's living underneath our own that we don't, we don't see but is constantly in jeopardy of taking over the normal human world.
4: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm a couple behind in this series. I need to catch up, but I'm also, I've been in a feud with Steven for years because he refuses to acknowledge that he named this character after me. (laughs) And, And he's been denying it for almost a decade now. And it's, he needs to come clean.
4: So are you announcing that you're a necromancer?
0: No, I'm just announcing that I'm very inspiring. And it's, when wow. we were hanging out a lot at the beginning of Noir at the Bar, because he and I started the Noir at the Bar in L.A. together, uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I don't think it's coincidence. I mean, I'd look, and I'm not saying I don't give off necromancer vibes. But, <laughs> I mean... Uh, excellent well those are uh two great reads two very wildly different uh, sides of the spectrum and then today on the episode we we're talking a lot about cozies so uh, this episode's covering it all fantastic uh all right guys well uh this, this is uh, lovely as always get get to reading something else for uh, for the next time and uh, uh we'll talk to you guys uh, in a couple weeks fantastic nice to see you Okay, well, we talked a little bit about cozies at the top of the show, but we're really going to dive in now with a question. And Ellen, since I have you here, I want to put it to you. Mm-hmm. When did cozies as we know them become a thing? The recipes, the pets, the puns in the titles, Like, where did this begin and form into such an established genre? But we're also going to bring in a few other expert opinions to help us answer this question. Fellow travelers in the cozy market, we have Jennifer J. Chow, author of the Sassy Cat mystery novel Mimi Lee Gets a Clue, Mimi Lee Reads Between the Lines, as well as the Winston Wong Mysteries, and also Patricia Sargent, who writes as Olivia Matthews, and as Olivia is the author of the Sister Lou Mysteries, as well as the new Peach Coast Library mystery Murder by Page One. Welcome to you both.
5: (laughs) Thank Thank you.
0: you. So who has some insight here? And who wants to school me on how Cozy's evolved into this massive industry unto itself?
1: I have to say that I really wasn't even aware of the term Cozy till um, in 2013, I won a, a, Malice, a William F. Deke Malice do, domestic grant for unpublished writers. I, that's where I really first heard the term Cozy's. But you know, I think people like Joanne Fluke and Hannah Mott Davidson, I think to look back to where it starts, you'd look at. I would look at their original publication dates. I mean, to me, it seems like a more recent phenomenon, but they've been around for a long time. Gals, yeah. what do you think?
5: Um, I agree with you, Ellen. Cozy probably got famous maybe in the late like 20th century is kind of what I've heard. And I think part of it was kind of going back to that, you know, golden age of detectives and wanting to have sort of the lighter mysteries instead of like these kind of gritty Crime fiction that was. It sounds like a lot of the cozies in the beginning were kind of food related, but then kind of morphed into crafts and like all sorts of different types of hooks and themes.
0: The first ones that I was definitely aware of were an entire row on my mother's bookshelf of the Lillian Jackson Braun, the Cat Who oh. <laughs> mystery. So that that was that was the first time I really realized this was a different thing. Uh, uh, Patricia, do you have any uh, any insight into when this became its own established subgenre
6: well i read this really interesting article a while back that credited agatha christie and and uh, dorothy sayers with being the pattern of the cozy mystery genre and i also read in that article cozy the term cozy mystery is a publishing term more than a reader term
1: It's I think it's morphed into a reader term now because it's really just kind of a brand for a certain point of book, a certain type of book. And what's interesting to me is that um, there was this post on The Wicked's recently. Uh, Jen and I belong to a block called Chicks on the Case. And then another a uh, popular blog is Wicked Authors, and there was a post about um, a woman who put, to, uh, a professor who put together an essays on, on um, a book of essays about cozies and underappreciated genre, and one of the essays, I haven't read the book yet, uh, actually says that they don't consider Agatha Christie a cozy mm-hmm. author, yet You know, the prototype that you're talking about, you know, a lovely setting, you know, victims that you really aren't... Mysteries that won't haunt your dreams is how I describe them and how justice is served at the end. You know, that her general structure really does hue to that.
6: I agree. I'm surprised that they didn't consider her.
1: I haven't read the essay. I really want to get that collection because I'm always... Beating a beating my one woman drama or or yelling into the wind, that the term cozy is really even within our own mystery community is uh, pejorative, which I think is unfair because you know there are there are crummy books in every single genre, but no one labels the entire uh, genre you know with a bit of a dismissive attitude.
5: I also read that Wicked's post and I wrote down the title and author just in case because I thought. It was um, interesting. Oh, good for you. It's called "Reading the Cozy Mystery: Critical Essays on an Underappreciated Subgenre," and it's edited by Phyllis M. Betts, B-E-T-Z.
0: Well, Patricia, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, since you have chosen to write. As Olivia Matthews for your cozy series versus your your other books. I mean, clearly this was a choice. Whether cozy is just purely a marketing term or not, it was one that you ha- you know saw fit to take on this other persona when you leaned into it. I mean, when you were deciding, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to join this subgenre and and write these kind of books, did you find that there were like a set of rules now that you had to adhere to?
6: You know, that's an excellent question, Eric. When when I was looking at different cozies, I realized that the genre was starting to push certain boundaries. And so some of the things that I thought were requirements, they they weren't in the cozies that, that I was reading. Like you have to have the food. Well, no, you have to have the pets. I read a lot of cozies without pets in them. And so I I thought that I would be able to push certain boundaries. I that's one of the reasons that I thought the cozy mystery uh, subgenre would be welcoming to me is because it was starting to move around.
0: I want to talk about my favorite thing about cozies and that's the puns in the titles <laughs> and and that is definitely a product of, of the more modern cozy world and it seems like it is an absolute rule among publishing that you can't even publish a cozy these days unless the title is it makes you have a little bit of a chuckle uh i mean you ladies are very good examples of this uh you know ellen you've got your with your cajun uh, mysteries. I mean, first of all, plantation shutters, that- shutters with, with with double D's. That's on, that's genius.
1: That was my friend Mindy, who I mentioned earlier. I get no credit for that title. I do, however, claim total credit for Long Island Iced Tina. Um, and actually, yes. my <laughs> my Cajun country series does not really have uh puns. It has more. It has alliteration, but it really doesn't have that many puns. But yeah, I'll, I just have to jump in for one minute because uh, when I wrote TV, I, or when I write, uh, I wrote with a TV writing partner and, you know, you don't do puns and it's like considered a very low form of humor for, for writers, you know, TV writers. And, you know, there's a bit of a snobbery about it. And I would read her these titles and her mouth would just drop open. She was like, I cannot believe, and I would send them to her. And at first she was like, Oh, and then she was like, these are hilarious. <laughs>
0: writing these books is coming up with a title. Does it have to get batted back and forth with your publisher a bunch of times? And, oh, no, that's not funny enough. It needs to be more clever. It needs to have a little bit of a wink and and a nod to it. Is it hard to come up with these titles, Jennifer? I mean, Mimi Lee, Mimi Lee gets a clue is one of those that's like, again, it's not really a pun, but it works on two levels because, you know, clue like the mystery and clue like she's mm. just trying to <laughs> get through her day, mm-hmm. you know?
5: Yeah. That uh, So credit for that goes to the marketing department because I did not come up with that title. In fact, I often use puns a lot more like in the writing and also for title creation. So when I was coming up with titles, I was thinking of um, titles like Doggone dangerous was a working title. Pup to no good because it was about a dog breeder, ah, you know, as the victim. Great. And so, oh, wow. you know, but then all those, all those, you know, they passed over and said, "Well, it's actually too punny." <laughs> so <laughs> they actually wanted it slightly less punny for me for the series.
0: <laughs> I, I did not know there was such a thing.
1: When I was coming up with ideas for the catering hall series, I literally built stories around punning um mobster type titles that they ended up not wanting to use because they were kind of like didn't want so like literally one was lee uh leave the gun take the frijoles and so it was going to be a mexican themed (laughs) and the witless protection program you know but those titles went away what about you patricia the
0: Sister Lou series, you've got Mayhem and Mass, Peril and Prayer, Alibis and Angels. I mean, these are clever. And they also give you that clue to like, yes, this is about this characters of Sister Lou. I mean, they all these titles have to work on so many different levels, right?
6: Yes. I, as you can see, I have a weakness for alliteration. Alibis and Angels was originally Secrets and Sacraments. And my editor said, that's too long. <laughs>
0: Now, I want to know where the line is between between a cozy and a traditional mystery because I think like the, that's the the question with Agatha Christie that we get a lot is like well, that's a traditional mystery because it doesn't have some of these more modern things, you know, she doesn't, uh, you know, work out of a, a cheese shop or something like that. <laughs> you know, I recently interviewed Jacqueline Winspear and I think her novels are a great example of, you know, they're, they're traditional mysteries. You, you couldn't call them cozies, but they're certainly not hard-boiled thrillers or stuff, do you see a a, a very thin line that separates these two things, or are they really two clear sides of the fence?
6: For me, the line seems very clear between a cozy mystery and a traditional mystery. In my opinion, the cozy mystery has more of an an escapist element, whereas the traditional, it has a little bit more tension. It's not cozy.
5: Oh, that's
0: a very good point. <laughs> I guess it is. It's all about how it makes you feel, right? <laughs>
5: yes, I think so. Yeah, you're definitely right about the cozy part of it. I think everything about sort of the cozy mystery packaging, you've got the covers and they tend to be bright. You have the titles. You know, even though there's a there's a murder in it, you know, the covers are still so cheerful. It is kind of a fine, fine line, but... I do see cozy's of a lot of like amateur sleuths there's like a hook to it sometimes in the back of the book you'll get the recipes or the knitting patterns or whatever it is that's the theme of the book
0: well, ladies, I, I want to thank you for uh, helping me to answer this question. I think you've, you've clarified a lot of things for me, and, and uh, I'm never going to not be entertained by the titles that, uh, that you and all the writers in your genre come up with. It's fantastic. Um, before I do let you go, I, I want to do a little PSA here, and we want to advocate. You know, the Anthony Awards were just announced, and once again, no cozy category. So, can we? start some sort of letter writing campaign. Write your senator and your congress people. We need to get Cozy's the respect that they deserve. And a lot of times that means awards that makes the profile a little higher. I mean, this is a big business. No one can deny this is not selling a ton of books. Why would these not be award categories?
6: Thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> We have to shut up these haters. Yeah, I,
0: I write as far away from Cozy as you can possibly get, but I I am I'll I will be the first one on the soapbox advocating advocate cozy's deserve more respect.
6: Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Preach <laughs>
0: Well, since we're on the subject of cozies, a new series has just debuted with Arsenic and Adobo from Mia Manansala. And Mia is already an award-winning writer before this book even came out. And this new series launch introduces us to Lila, who's getting over a breakup while trying to save her Tita Rosie's failing restaurant. And lo and behold, her ex shows up dead and she's a suspect. So you'll solve solve a mystery and learn a few Filipino food recipes along the way. Now, Ellen, when I spoke to Mia, she mentioned the thrill of having someone not only read your book, but follow through and bake one of the recipes in back. And that has got to be the most
1: satisfying thing for a cozy writer, doesn't it? Well, if you are culinarily inclined, all my books have recipes. And that is a complete accident because I'm really not a cook. (laughs) What happened is when I was writing the first book, Plantation Shutters, I made myself hungry because I love Cajun food. And I thought, well, if I'm getting hungry, my readers will get hungry, so I should put in some recipes. I'm telling you, it is like the hardest part of the book for me. And in fact, in the second book, Body on the Bayou, uh, I rejiggered a recipe because it wasn't to my liking. And then in the rejiggering, I left an ingredient out. (laughs) Oh, no! <laughs> so in the hardcover, we were able, you know, the great thing about Kindle is you can make the changes when mm. you find the mistakes you've made, but I couldn't change it in the hardcover. Or so when people would give it, me, give it to me to sign, I would go to the recipe page and then write in the ingredient <laughs> that was missing. I know. And a couple of people wrote to me and said, Hey, I think there's something wrong here. And I'm like, you betcha. <laughs>
0: I have met. I don't know if you remember this, mm-hmm. but uh, I I, uh, I introduced you to the stage at Murder and Mayhem in Chicago back in 2018, I think, after you'd won the uh, award.
7: Yeah, I remember. I've met you before. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But <laughs> right. well, how are you? Busy, I assume.
7: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where... You, you take on all the things, it seems like a good idea. And then you're like, oh no, now I have to like do said thing. Yes. <laughs> but, it, but it's like a good busy, you know? It's like, oh no, I have to talk with people who are excited and want to support my book. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a great feeling, it's been really nice.
0: Well, uh, we're gonna jump right in and uh, cause I think we've hit on something already that, the, that writing is uh, much more than just writing the book. You You finish that and you realize, <laughs> oh my gosh, that was the tip of the iceberg. <laughs>
7: Yeah. Getting into it, I knew that, you know, you, there was, you know, the promo work and all that, but I, I didn't realize how much time and energy it would take from me personally uh, to do that. You know, like I'm, I'm an introvert. I can turn it on, you know, like the extrovert side. I, you know, I was a teacher for like a decade. So like, I know how to perform when I need to. Yeah. But after you know closeting yourself and working on a book for years and now you're <laughs> just like oh no now i have to like tell people and get them to actually read it and to, uh, it, it's such a strange <laughs> feeling and a very different kind of switch to have to turn on
0: yeah well and i'm catching you now one day after your book release uh, <laughs> did you did you get any sleep last night or, or was it actually worse the night before release
7: it was worse the night before. It was very much like kid on Christmas, which is weird because like, again, because I'm lucky enough to have so many friends in the writing community, they warned me that it can feel very anticlimactic if you don't like kind of plan something to be a little to make it special for yourself. Because, yeah. you know, for everyone else in the world, it, it was just a Tuesday. Right, <laughs> right. No, Like nothing, you know, I didn't wake up and then there's a pile of like, you're an author now, you know, things waiting <laughs> for me. But I, I did plan a few small things to make it special for myself. So well, that's good. It, it was really nice.
0: Well, your path to publication, it, it really is kind of highlighted for me just how slow publishing can be to move. <laughs> I mean, you know, you were out there winning awards in 2018 and you're pitching, you're selling. And yet here we are so far removed from that, it feels like a lifetime ago and your debut is Mm -hmm. just out now. I mean, in that intervening time, did you start to get antsy and just want it to go or did it actually give you a little bit of time maybe to sort of learn and and prepare for this day?
7: Maybe a little bit of both, um, especially because this is my debut. It's the first book getting published but it's not the first one I finished. It's not the first one. Uh, I had a different book and a different agent before this. I think my first book is what taught me the patience to help me get through this. Because with my first book, that took me almost three years to write. It got me my first agent. I was on submission for a year and a half, which wow. it, you know, for for listeners, like that can be a that's a very long time. Yeah, um, especially if it doesn't go anywhere. Sadly, like it did for me. But I mean, but luckily in that time, I used it to write what would become my debut, which is Arsenic and Adobo. So like I I used that time well. And knowing how long it can take and experience that rejection so early on it helped me kind of temper my expect, like, expectations this time around where like anytime I did get a win, I was like, Oh, Oh wow. This is great. Yay. Thanks. You know? So I, I felt like I appreciated it more. Uh, it sounds like a really mom thing, you know, where it's just like, well, now you appreciate what you really have because you, because <laughs> you, you experienced those hard knocks early, you know, no,
0: I, I think, I think um. it sounds like a very healthy attitude going in because you do. I mean, it's like, it, it is a huge part of it. And I think using your time wisely in that downtime is, is very smart. <laughs> Well, all right, Arsenic and Adobo, uh, which is your debut, it's -hmm. it's a cozy, we can Mm -hmm. safely call it that, because you have ticked all the boxes. You've got recipes, you've got a pet, (laughs) you've got the dead ex boyfriend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We're talking cozies uh, on the episode today. Who did you first read to kind of get interested in this genre?
7: like when, when I'm kind of like joking with people where I say like it started oh it started really young like um I like to quote like uh, encyclopedia brown takes the cake so uh-huh. like which was like as a kid I was like oh wow there are these cases and then you flip it and you find the answer and then there's like a, an accompanying recipe um <laughs> but like in all honesty with like with modern day like what we know as culinary cozy now it's it was of course joanne fluke mm-hmm. my mom is the one who got me into mystery and she's also the one who got me into cozy specifically uh she works at uh her local library and one day she was like look it's a mystery with a cookie baker and i was like that's a thing like this cookie." <laughs> but i'm like okay you know we, we, me and my, my mom and i don't only really have a ton in common but we do both love mystery so i'm like i'm gonna buddy read this with her so we have things to talk about and you know, it's it's such a ridiculous but such a fun subgenre of mystery. So that's kind of where it started.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Cozy does feel like it has all these different threads. I mean, even even just having a name to it, culinary cozy, is it, mm-hmm. it, I mean, that probably didn't exist maybe even 15, 20 years ago, right?
7: Yeah. But it's like huge now and I'm super into it. I'm like, food and mysteries are like two of my favorite things. <laughs>
0: Well, in the book, uh, Lila has to step in and save Tita Rosie's restaurant. Now, mm-hmm. to me, Tita Rosie seemed like, of anyone in the book, this might be a character that was maybe based on someone in your real life. Is, is that true? <laughs> is this someone from your family?
7: Kind of, yeah. So in my family, my dad was the cook. Oh. One of the reasons that I love food so much and why I, 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 I showed it so much in this particular book and in all my series is that I think food can be a love language. Particularly in my family, like not to be stereotypical, but you know, in Asian families, like the words "I love you" are not things that are said out loud. They're things uh-huh. that are shown. And I even have a line like that in the book because, like, that's how my dad was. You know, he was, he was an old school stoic, you know, Filipino immigrant uh, who worked really, really hard. But at night and on the weekends, he would cook these amazing feasts to, like, to show his love and care for the family. And yeah. I kind of wanted to show that um, in the books because like, he passed away while I was still writing this, and oh, so the book is dedicated to him, and you know, I wanted to make sure that he, uh, his spirit w- was in my work.
0: Well, that's great. Well, Lila, she has to become pretty resourceful in a hurry, and she certainly, mm-hmm. she kind of takes on a lot of things all at once. You really pile it on <laughs> her. Is that at all, do you think, like, uh, like a writer's life? I mean, we do have to keep a lot of plates spinning in the air at the same mm-hmm. time, right?
7: Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of that thing where it's, you know, like that when it rains, it pours. It's like it's never just like one bad thing. It's just like, oh, you and your fiance broke up because he was cheating on you. Well, you're also going to be losing your family business and you're also going to be a murder suspect. You know, it's a heightened fictional degree, but I feel like in real life it's always like... It's very much like that, you
0: know, oh, for sure, well, and that's and, and <laughs> you, you, clearly uh, I think there's there's a difference between you know maybe a short story and a novel is if one thing mm-hmm. goes wrong, you can knock it out in a short story, but if you want to sustain it for a novel, yeah, pile it on let's let's watch oh, yeah. these characters twist <laughs> a little bit, yeah uh, I read you're also a certified book coach
7: mm-hmm.
0: uh, I didn't know there were certifications in that. how do you certified by who? <laughs>
7: So there is um, a course through author accelerator. The CEO is Jenny Nash and she kind of, you know, like she didn't like originate book coaching, but she's kind of the one who, who made it big and kind of created her own course that people can go through. So I already kind of had a lot of the qualifications because I also did work as a pitch wars mentor uh, for years where, you know, you take someone on, give them edit letters, provide them, you know, uh, revision plans and walk them through. But I, I knew if people were going to be trusting me with me, their stories and also their money, obviously, cause it's, <laughs> these aren't cheap. Right. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, to really invest in myself in the business. And, and so this course gives like methodology. Um, it breaks it down, you know, from the very beginning, it gives you special exercises that you can use. And so like, I, I went through that to to make sure that I felt really confident in, in taking on clients to do this.
0: Well, it's clear also that you've used uh, some of that time between uh, selling Arsenic and Adobo and the release. Uh, mm-hmm. a book two already finished. There's a little preview in the back of uh, this book mm-hmm. uh, if, towards the next one. I mean, are you always thinking, and, and I guess w- when you set out and knowing that you're going to be doing this this series, mm-hmm. did you already have a number of stories lined up or did you have to sort of hunt for that next one and think, oh boy, now I've sold the series. How do I make this into a series? <laughs>
7: Because like because I knew Cozy's tend to be series, I was thinking several books ahead. So, you know, before they even made an offer, I talked with one of my editors ahead of time and they were like, what do you have planned next? And I'm like, mm. I had like six books already planned. I was like, nice. well, you know, because for me, even though like obviously the plot is super important in a mystery, I try to make my more character driven. Mm-hmm. And so because of the world that I've set up, I feel like the characters kind of naturally lead to a lot of different places. So I was like, oh yeah, if I, you know, with book two, I could hit on this relationship and and then book three. So I really, I finished book two, I'm working on book three and, you know, fingers crossed that they want more. I already have several more books um, in my head that I can kind of plot out in case they want to renew that contract.
0: Excellent. And uh, do you, in addition to coming up with the plots, are you already planning recipes at the same time?
7: Yeah, <laughs> like that's like the fun part where it's just like, oh yeah, let me just take a break and like bake some cookies or like throw together a, a cake or something. This is research, right? Like this yeah. is working. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, the, the one that I wanted to try uh, in, in the back of our snick and adobo was the first one. The uh, the I don't even know if I'm saying this right. The ube crinkles. Is that am I saying yeah.
7: that? Yeah, ube.
0: I, I've never even heard of that.
7: Yeah, ube it's like a purple yam. Um it's 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 a beautiful color but it's it's a little bit mild. It's it's like a mild sweet potato, slightly vanilla It's one of the difficulties in writing um a culinary cozy about Filipino food is just like how do I describe how these things taste to someone who's never tried it before, because yeah. a lot of times there's not necessarily a Western equivalent, right? right? But I feel like, again, if you like sweet potato, I think you appreciate the ube. It's, it's a very subtle flavor. It's nothing, you know, too too exotic or different than what you've had before. And we use it in so many of our desserts.
0: All right, I'm, I'm going to get on this uh, and I will I will make these <laughs> and I will report back.
7: <laughs> ah yes, please. I lo- I'm one of the things that makes me so happy is people like posting on Instagram or, or sending me messages saying like, "I tried your recipes. It's so delicious. It was my first time having Filipino food," and I'm like, "Oh, thank Aww. you." <laughs> <laughs>
0: See, the the satisfaction in becoming a published author comes from so many different angles (laughs) that we never knew.
7: (laughs) Yeah, you know, because it's one thing to invest your time and money in like buying and reading my book, but like you went out and like sourced these ingredients and tried this food you've never had before and you you trusted me that it wasn't going to be terrible, you know, (laughs) considering that it's in a book called Arsenic and Adobo. you know, like. (laughs) So, yeah, it meant a lot to me.
0: Well, Ellen, thank you so much for helping me host today uh, and helping me answer this burning question I had about Cozy's. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's been fabulous. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's really fun. Great. Oh, my well, voice Cozy... just went up. That's how exciting and fun it was. My voice went up. <laughs> we can
0: tell. Cozy fans should get on Ellen's 2 series, uh, both under your name and your pen name. They're, these books are funny and murdery in equal amounts. You can always find us uh, on Twitter at Writer Types. Back episodes are always available at writertypespodcast.com. Ellen, uh, I look forward to seeing you in person uh, again when, when we do that. Uh, yes. If, maybe, someday, who knows? Uh,
1: well, I'm going to con in New Orleans.
0: Of course, it's in New Orleans. Why wouldn't of course. you? You'll be the queen of the,
1: of the parade down there. <laughs> oh, hardly. I wish. That would be fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and I'll, I'll be back again next week with more great authors.